From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. My guest in this episode is Barry Schwartz, the Dorwin Cartwright Professor of Social Theory and Social Action at Swarthmore College, author of 10 books and hundreds of articles. Barry Schwartz is well known for both his scholarship and his ability to bring complex sociological and psychological research to bear on the practical matters we all face in our daily lives at work and at home. He's written The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, which was named one of the best business books of the year by Business Week and Forbes when it first was published. And with Ken Sharp, he wrote Practical Wisdom, about which he gave a TED Talk viewed by more than two million people. In this episode, Barry and I talk about his most recent book, which is Why We Work. We also talk about the history of philosophies of work motivation and how these are becoming more enlightened, thanks in part to pressures being brought to bear by young people and by women. The inducements to contribute to an organization, in his view, cannot and should not be based entirely on an economic model, but must also provide meaning, variety, social interactions that matter. It's got to be more than money. All right, get set now to learn from one of the modern masters of organizational life and how we think and feel about what we do at work, Barry Schwartz. Barry Schwartz, welcome to Work and Life. Well, thank you so much. Oh, man. This, this great new book of yours is something that uh, I know a lot of our listeners are going to be interested in. It's called Why We Work, and you obviously dig into the question of why indeed do we work. So give us uh, you know, the, the brief synopsis of how you got into this piece and what was, what was like the primary discovery when you sought to answer this question? Well, so this is a long this this question has a long history with me. I was trained in the psychology of B.F. Skinner. Your listeners may not even know who that is anymore. But well, he was, I have to say, I met B.F. Skinner. Ah, uh, well, I had an office down the hall from him for a year. Amazing. So B.F. Skinner, dominant uh, psychologist in the from the forties to roughly nineteen seventy invented the so-called Skinner box, and his view was that if you understood how rewards and punishments work, mm-hmm. you'd understand everything. Uh, and this is especially true of human beings. So the answer for him to the question why we work is the rewards and punishments. And, uh, you know, I thought this was a way too limited and reductive view. It didn't seem to describe me or most of the people I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, Nonetheless, it seemed pretty much to characterize the way workplaces were organized. And I started talking to a couple of philosophers at Swarthmore soon after I arrived, and they got me to read people like Adam Smith, 
I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't read them before. And, you know, Smith, the, the father of, uh, of classical economics, had essentially the same view. Uh, you know, he said people are basically lazy. Uh, they'd rather be doing nothing than something. So to get them to do something productive, you have to make it worth their while, and that means you've got to pay them. And once you pay them, it doesn't much matter what you have them do because they won't like it anyway, no matter what it is, and they're working for pay. So the assembly line, his famous pin factory, where you take something that's pretty simple to begin with, and then you make it even simpler by dividing it up into six or seven or ten different components to make straight pins, you know, that's his model of efficient production. And you ask, well, would anyone like to be just putting heads on pins eight hours a day, you know, five days a week? And his answer would be, of course not. But, but it doesn't matter. Because, because we are machines, or extensions we're machines, of machines, right? As long as right? we're getting paid, we'll do whatever we have to do to get paid. So the metaphor of the worker was as an extension of the machine. Absolutely. And then, in the, you know, 100 years later, there was this movement called the Scientific Management Movement that really tried to take the metaphor seriously by doing these meticulous time and motion studies so that you could create assembly lines where people expended the least possible effort and produce the fastest possible uh, production. Uh, and again, and they also experimented with different ways of paying people to see how you, what kind of pay schedule would get people to work the hardest, the longest. So this was, the, so the answer to the question why we work was people work for pay full stop. That's the economic model. That's the, the economic, model, economic model, and it's the industrial model. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that economists, when they wrote in this way, never really believed that it was true because they didn't think it was true of them. Um, so, you know, there's a hmm. kind of there's us and there's them. There are the people who wear uh, sh uh, white shirts and ties, and there are the people who wear blue shirts and work boots. And for us, other things matter, but us is just a small fraction of the hmm. population. And for them, everybody else, it's just about the paycheck. Um, so I... You know, I think, I, I, I know this is a, an inaccurate uh, depiction of work, but I think what's really important is that if you create workplaces in the image of this model, it will become true. Because if the only work available to you is, is soul-deadening, repetitive, mechanical work, then indeed you will work for the paycheck and nothing more, because mm -hmm. there isn't anything more to be gotten. And so your soul is indeed deadened and yeah, so crushed, and, and you might rebel. You might rebel, but, you know, you've got to put food on the table. You've got to have a roof over your head. So, you know, in effect, we started with a false understanding about what people care about, and we made it true by creating work structures that were consistent with that false understanding. And this is what I call ideology, which is a term that Karl Marx used to describe false ideas about human beings that become true mm -hmm. when they get institutionalized. And you can see this happening, you know, with, uh, with schools. Everyone is wringing their hands about how bad the public school system is. But increasingly, the attitude toward teachers, which is only being resisted because the teachers won't stand for it, is that they're basically cogs in a machine. You mm -hmm. give them scripts, detailed lesson plans, and then you make their pay and bonuses and tenure contingent on how well kids do on standardized tests. And what happens when you do that is the good teachers leave, mm -hmm. and the not-so-good teachers never have any occasion to get any better. 
and then they start cheating, right? They teach to the test or they change answers. Uh, so test scores go up, but kids don't learn any more than they did before. So uh, it's not just, you know, blue-collar factory workers. This is really spread throughout, I think, the workplace. As, as, as a model for how we organize work. And, of course, it's very destructive. It's uh, very destructive. Of, Doctors are incredibly unhappy with the way they practice. It's mm-hmm. becoming a really a national problem. Uh, they're leaving the profession. They're clinically depressed. Lawyers have been the unhappiest profession for years. And I think it's because we've basically sapped work of anything that people might aspire to aside from a paycheck. And if you're a doctor or a lawyer, you're getting a big paycheck, but that just it's, doesn't cut it. So uh, back in the 60s and 70s, there was a, a humanist uh, revolution of sorts that tried to counteract the destructive uh, uh, powers of this ideology and to create a new way of thinking about yep. work, uh, which I studied at the University of Michigan uh, in the early 80s. But in the 70s, <clears throat> at the University of Michigan, there was, uh, it was really one of the centers of this social movement to reimagine work as something that could be ennobling and enriching of the spirit and to create a sense of meaning, purpose, and co- real consequence. And it seems to me that your work comes out of you know, that tradition, which uh, hasn't f- really taken as uh, hold in the, in the way that we would have uh, hoped, I think, no, back in those halcyon thing. days. I mean, you know, there's no, there aren't any ideas in my book that have not been articulated periodically before. You picked one time, but there are other times even earlier on where people acknowledge this, but sure. somehow it never sticks. But maybe now the time is different. Maybe I'm the time... hoping it is for a couple of reasons. Yes. I am. One is that uh, there's research indicating that women care more about meaning and purpose in work than men do. And as more and more uh, women enter the workforce and companies uh, have a higher and higher proportion of employees who are women. Uh, managers may find that they, they won't be able to keep mm-hmm. good employees unless they give the people working there some sense that they're working for a purpose. One of the things we found, uh, we, we just uh, published a study a couple of years ago comparing the class of 1992 with the class of 2012 at Wharton, and it was a longitudinal study. So we asked hundreds of questions of the class of 1992 when they graduated and did the same in 2012. So we have a true cross-generational longitudinal design. And one of the important findings in the study was how the need uh, for having a positive social impact through your work has grown for both men and women, but especially for women. uh, Right, but that's the second thing, and that is the millennial. uh, The aspirations of millennials, at at least uh, while they're young, are quite different from what has preceded Yes. So I just think that if you run a business and you want to attract talent, women and young people, you're going to have to show them that at the end of each workday, they've made the world better in some small way. Uh, so I'm somewhat optimistic. Mm. And then as these young people move up the organization, they may actually transform when they're in positions of leadership, they may transform the organization. I have the same hope uh, and and expectation. So how does what you write about in, in Why We Work help us to understand this movement and, and what people can do to advance it? Well, I, I do a couple of things. One is I try to talk about what things do matter to people aside from a paycheck. Um, they, wanna, uh, they want some control over what they do, some autonomy. They want some variety in what they do. They want to be challenged. 
They want a sense that they're growing, that they're learning on the job. Uh, and most important, they want social engagement with, uh, with coworkers and respect from supervisors and coworkers. And most important, they want this sense of meaning, uh, that there's a point to what they do aside mm-hmm. from simply paying their, their rent. Um, so we know what you need to, uh, what, you, what you need to add to a workplace in order for people to get real satisfaction. And I also show in the book that workplaces that are structured in this way are the most profitable workplaces in their industry Hang across on. a wide variety of industries, which makes it even more puzzling. So tell us about that evidence. Well, uh, there's a, a, a management uh, a researcher named um, Jeff uh, Pfeffer at Stanford. He was on the show last week. How about that? Well, this is an older book of his. He has a new one, I gather. Yes, Leadership BS. This is a book called, um, what's it called? The Human Equation. Mm -hmm. And what he does is he reviews evidence from banking and other kinds of financial industry, manufacturing, a lot of service industry, and shows in every case that um, the most profitable companies are the ones that have the most enlightened uh, management practices. Um, The most profitable companies are the ones that invest the most time in training and uh, personnel development and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you might argue that uh, work ought to be organized in this way as a social good, because why should people spend half their waking lives doing something they hate when they don't have to? But then the boss would say, well, that's not my problem. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to make a profit. So then you turn around and you say, well, it turns out that here's a case where you do well by doing good. So why don't we see this more widespread? That's the total mystery, right? Why are all these companies leaving money on the table? And the only answer I can come up with to that is that the grip of this ideology about why people work, you know, the implicit answer that everyone has to my question, Hmm. just closes them off to the possibility that um, if they had a richer understanding, if they gave their employees more credit, um... Uh, the employees would be happier, the employees would do better work, and the company would be more profitable. Credit, you say? Credit for, for having the motivation? Credit for being responsible, serious people mm-hmm. who want to do a good job. You know, a lot of the reliance on, on, on um, micromanagement and incentives is a reflection of a lack of trust. Of course. You know, if I don't manage the hell out of them, they'll just sit around doing nothing. They'll take advantage of me. So, you know, that's uh, how do you combat that? You combat that by making it so that if they do take advantage of, of you, you see it and they suffer. Yes. Uh, so if you trusted your employees, you know, you give them the goal and you trust that they'll figure out the way to achieve the goal. Um, or you give them the training so that they're eventually in a position to figure out how to achieve the goal instead of giving them recipes. Instead of micromanaging and telling... Yeah, and, you know, the trouble is that with the, you know, all this technology we've got now, Mm -hmm. the level of micromanagement that's possible is just overwhelming. You don't even need to be standing there and looking over your employee's shoulder. You can measure a million things. Yes. Big data can be intrusive. The duration of every every call in the call center. Mm Mm-hmm. So the tools for micromanagement are there, and I'm afraid that you know managers can't resist the temptation to use them. 
because it gives uh, at least the illusion of greater control, if not the, the, the fact greater of greater control. control. It, but it, that might just, squeeze out all the uh, the, the human uh, capacity for creative uh, and ingenious uh, effort that would cr- cr- produce they have great more results. Control, mm-hmm. but they get worse work. Yes, this is but the that, great dilemma. That, by the way, I think raises another possible explanation, mm-hmm. which is that managers hate the thought of giving up control. Well, some do. Some and, do. And why is that? What What is the fear there? What's the anxiety about giving up control and unleashing the human potential that's there? Well, if you do that, what role do you play? You still need it? Well, uh, you, you, know, you perhaps can manage need, themselves. You're perhaps needed to do something different, which Maybe. is to guide and and to help to you know manage external connections and help to, to provide a sense of uh, direction by having it's a bigger true. picture. Right? It's true, but there are an awful lot of people whose job is to make sure that an awful lot more mm-hmm. people are just doing their jobs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you had other ways of assuring that people would be doing their jobs, these people would have no role to play. So, so, so do, do you scary. see the elimination of the of the middle management ranks uh, uh, in the offing as, as uh, people become more empowered, uh, perhaps through big data, to be able to manage themselves? Well, it, it's not out of the question that that could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but, that, but all I'm suggesting is that it may actually be a source of uh, one source of the resistance Yes. To, you know, the evidence that I regard as plain and unambiguous. Amazing. So one of the things that we like to talk about on this show, of course, is the connection between work and other parts of life. I wonder what your thoughts are about uh, thinking about the connection between greater sense of meaning and purpose that is plainly available, uh, if not difficult to implement for so many different kinds of organizations. What impact that has or and could have on people's on employees' lives beyond work in their families, communities, and for themselves personally. Well, you know, I I suppose you'd actually need to collect data on this, and I haven't. But but what I suspect is, um, if you do work that you value, you will be happy at work. Mm-hmm. If you're happy at work, your relations with other people will go better. When you come home at the end of the workday, your puss won't be sour, your patience won't be strained, you'll be in a good mood more of the time, and the result is that your spouse and your kids will actually find it tolerable to be with you. Well, they might even enjoy it. and this They is, might even enjoy it. That, I mean, let, well, let's not get carried away. They no, might. no, no. We should get carried away because the research does support that. It's called positive spillover, right? Uh-huh. When you feel good in one part of your life and it's, it's, it's likely to spill over both in terms of your emotional state as well as the kind of behavior you demonstrate in, in the other roles that you play. And we also, uh, we also have evidence, Barbara Fredrickson has provided this, that people who experience positive affect are more creative. Mm-hmm. Now, in the workplace, the advantage of that is obvious. I haven't thought much about the potential advantages of this, you know, when you come home at the end of the workday, but it seems to me quite possible that being more creative means the, you know, the, the problems that inevitably, we inevitably face in managing our, uh, I don't know, re- rebellious adolescent kids are you know, we find that we have an easier time solving those problems if we can think about them more openly and creatively, mm-hmm. which we might well do 
if we come home from work, you know, sort of feeling good about ourselves instead of feeling, uh, you know, down, depressed, Depleted. and uh, miserable. Yeah. Uh, so there, there's so many benefits uh, to this. Now, if you're... You know, there's one, let me just say, there is one potential drawback that's worth mentioning. I think this is a very small price to pay. There are some people who like the idea that when the day, work day is over, they leave their work and they come home. So, you know, they are okay with the idea that work is just for making a living and they be, they're, they're human in the rest of their life. And they don't want to have to come home at the end of the day with work still on their mind. The so-called segmenters. Is, yeah, uh, and you know, the problem is if you're really engaged with your work, then yes. you're not going to stop thinking about it when, the, you well, know, when it gets to be 5 o'clock. So you may be a little bit distracted when right. interacting. So, and, you know, it, could that happen? Of course it can happen. It c- certainly happened to me often enough in the mm-hmm. course of my career. When, my kids would ask me something, I'm looking right at them, and I'm not hearing a word that they say. I know exactly what you mean, Barry. It's happened to me as well. And I study this whole issue of boundaries, the psychological and, and the the physical boundaries that you need to be able to switch gears and attend yep. to the people around you, so even though your is mind is elsewhere. Potential, you know, that... I could see people paying a small price in that way. And, and, and further, that it's possible to learn how to control your attention if you really are focused on it and to maintain you know, a focus on the people who are right in front of you when they need you. It, yep. so those, are, those are learnable skills. Barry, we are nearing the end of our time together, I'm afraid. Uh, let me ask you a final question then, and that is, uh, what do you see unfolding? You see young people in class every day. What what do you see unfolding? If you were to look out for, you know, the next uh, quarter century or so, what do you what do you think you might see in terms of how work is going to look? I'm optimistic because of the women and uh, millennials that more and more workplaces will discover this not very hidden secret and uh, and give their employees a chance to find meaning and satisfaction at the same time that they get a paycheck. Uh, I, I'm hoping that by the time my grandchildren are entering the workforce, uh, finding a wonderful job won't be like finding a needle in a haystack anymore. I'm optimistic as well, and I thank you, Barry, for, for composing this great work that helps us all understand why we work and what it means for how we organize work in our society. Uh, Barry, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It was a great, uh, you had great questions. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the great Professor Barry Schwartz, author of Why We Work, a book I strongly recommend you read. Further, I hope that you're taking away some ideas that you can use to make your experience of work more meaningful. So here's a challenge for you, an invitation. What small, easy step can you take this week maybe tomorrow, maybe today, toward bringing a bit more variety, better social interaction, or greater sense of your impact on other people to your experience of work or in some other organization like a school. And you don't have to turn your whole world around to try something that improves work and your experience of it in in such ways. So why not why not try an experiment? And if you do, talk to a friend about it or a trusted colleague or write to me and let me know 
about how this experiment went, what you discovered, because when you talk about things that you try, you, you, you learn them better, and you can use what you've learned to build on your capacity to create positive change in the world. I'd love to hear from you about this and other matters. You can tweet at Stu Friedman or just email me directly at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. And for more information about Barry Schwartz, you can visit his, his page at Swarthmore College, or I recommend you start by checking out his TED Talk, Practical Wisdom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.